0: One of the things about preaching passage or chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is sometimes scheduling gets a little mixed up and out of order. And um, Jamie has worked hard to prepare, and it's unfair for me to say, hey, can you switch gears and and jump to a different chapter? Um, It's been one of the fun transitions of going from one speaker to multiple speakers. Um, So we got out of order a little bit. And uh, Jamie last week covered Psalm 50, if you were here. And these two Psalms, 49 and 50, are connected chronologically. So in a way, this sermon might feel a bit anticlimactic because Jamie covered what happens after you die in, verse, in chapter 50. My Psalm deals with the getting dead part that precedes the judgment Right? So we got 49 is the getting dead, 50 what happens after you get dead. Um, As the old comedians used to say, it is not dying I am afraid of, it is the getting dead part of dying that I am afraid of. Um, But before jumping into our text this morning, I want to tell you about two men that I think will kind of help us frame this psalm in our mind a little bit. Um, The year was 1899. There were two prominent men that died in America in that same year. And the differences between their deaths could not be more stark. The first was a man named Robert Ingersoll. And the second was a man named Dwight Moody. Let me give you a quick background of each of their deaths. Um, First, Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll was known as the great agnostic who dedicated his life to the refutation of Christianity. His father was a minister and and he grew up in a minister's home and yet rejected the faith of his father and became one of the greatest defenders of being agnostic in America. In an age... Before television, before social media, you had oratory. The, these were people that would travel around and give speeches. And, and he was the unchallenged dean of American oratories. He, he just was the best. If you were running for office, you wanted this guy to speak for you. He was seen and heard by more Americans than would be seen or heard or, or excuse me, he as a human being, he had been seen more than any other American at the time of his death. So, so him by himself, more Americans had seen him than any other single human being that had existed. Again, remember, this is before radio, before motion pictures. And Ingersoll was a wealthy attorney. He was a, a political operative. Um, again, helping multiple presidents get elected to office when he lived in Washington DC he would speak for them and be an oratory uh, device for them but Ingersoll in 1899 suddenly died of a stroke leaving his unprepared family in utter shock news of his death filled newspapers across the nation and across the world Ingersoll was publicly mourned by figures such as industrialist Andrew Carnegie. The suffrage campaigner Elizabeth Stanton wrote this about him, declaring that no death outside of my own family could fill me with such sadness. What a glorious life of self-sacrifice and faithfulness to principle to, to the principle, his the principle <laughs> man, she said this weird. "To principle has been. Trying to banish religious superstition from the souls of multitudes of men and women. So grief stricken was his wife that she would not allow the body to be taken from the home. It was not until it became a threat to the family's health that it was finally removed. And then his remains were cremated and his funeral service was such a scene of dismay and despair that even the newspapers of the day commented on it. Death came to this man and there was no hope, only a hopeless tragedy. Now, the second man who died that year was Dwight Moody, the Christian evangelist. Some of you may have heard that name before. Moody had been declining for some time, and his family had gathered around his bed. And on his last morning, his son heard him say, Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. His son said, You are dreaming, Father. But Moody replied, No will. That was his son's name. This is no dream. I have been within the gates. I have seen the children's faces. Moody seemed to revive, but then started to slip away again and asked this question Is this death? This is not so bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. His daughter had now come and she began to pray for him to recover. To which Moody responds No, no, Emma, (laughs) don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. Moody died not long after, his family confident of his entry into heaven. His funeral was a scene of triumph and joy. Those attending sang hymns and exalted God. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? They exclaimed with radiant faces. These two. Men lived and died in extremely different ways, and with those two deaths and these of these two great men in our mind, I want to unpack Psalm, what the psalmist has to say in Psalm forty-nine. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to break it down, shockingly, into three sections. <laughs> that was a surprise, a little curveball there. No, three sections. I'm going to look at verses one through six. If you kind of have some headings in your notes, the heading would be gather around everyone and listen to a riddle, gather around everyone and listen to a riddle. The second way I'm going to divide this Psalm is verses seven through 15. Your money won't save your soul from death. Your money will not save your soul from death. And then finally, in verses 16 through 20, fear not, believers, death is coming. You heard me right. Fear not, believers, death is coming. This this final point, I believe, is the psalmist's main point of the entire psalm. Fear not, believers, death is coming. So let's read the first six verses together this morning. We're going to chunk it up and kind of take it. Section by section. And to keep you awake, I'm going to have you read three times instead of one. Starting in verse 1. Hear this, all peoples. Read with me. Give ear all inhabitants of the world. Both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of their abundance of their riches. These first six verses. That the psalmist is, is calling everyone to gather around and listen to this message. And notice that he's calling both the rich and the poor. A lot of times this psalm is preached strictly to the rich. As a way of being almost condemning. But the psalmist isn't doing that. He he wants everyone to hear the message of what he's going to say. He wants both the rich and the poor. The high in society. The low in society. He wants them all to gather around and listen to this riddle. Then in verse 3 he says something interesting. My mouth shall speak Wisdom, the meditation of my heart, shall be understanding. Spurgeon, commenting on this section of the psalm, wrote this The same Spirit who made ancient seers eloquent also made them thoughtful. The help of the Holy Ghost was never meant to supersede the use of our own mental powers. The Holy Spirit does not make us speak as Balaam's ass. And for those of you who don't know who Balaam's ass was, um, it was not a person. It was a donkey. And in Numbers twenty-two twenty-eight, there's a fun story you can read to all your kids um, about how the Lord opened the mouth of a donkey because Balaam wasn't listening. And, and the donkey uttered, what have I done to you that you have struck me three times? So the Holy Spirit doesn't make us speak the way that animal spoke, which merely uttered sounds, but never meditated on what was being said. Instead, Spurgeon says, we first consider and reflect what the Holy Spirit has said to us. And then he gives us the tongue of fire to speak with power. In other words, we're not just holy repeaters. He he is wanting to engage with the human mind and, and the human understanding. And we are to meditate on his truths and then begin to speak and share from that position. We are to meditate on what the Holy Spirit teaches us, allowing it to change us from the inside before we speak. And this is important because sometimes the Holy Spirit's challenge is just for you and no one else. It's not for everyone in your small group. It's not for everyone in your friend circle. Even even as pastors, we have to be on guard and very careful about this because sometimes the Lord will deal with us about something during the week and our temptation is, well, let me preach about that on Sunday. But that may have just been something the Lord wanted to deal with me about. And after we let that meditation of our heart lead to understanding, then we will be given the wisdom of knowing, do we need to share this? Or do we just need to confess and repent and move forward? Then in verse 4, he says, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. The psalmist sets his answer to this riddle to the strumming of a lyre. Now, this is not an instrument that we use a whole lot nowadays, but it's a small harp-like instrument that one would hold in his lap. Oftentimes, poets would use a liar to just kind of strum along as they're reciting their poem to give emphasis to certain parts and to draw the listeners in verse five. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the inequity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their riches and boast of the abundance of their riches. And the Psalmist here is responding to the threatening wicked who boast in their wealth. By asking why he should fear them. When we set our rock in contrast with theirs. It would be foolish of us, the psalmist says. To fear them or be afraid of them. Even though they are loud and obnoxious. And they're flaunting their wealth in front of us. And their so-called earthly power we can afford to sit back and smile because we know how fleeting all of that is. And the psalmist emphasizes that wealth, which the the wicked are trusting in, it can't redeem their souls, as we'll see in verses 7 through 15. Let's, Let's read that together. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he, uh, even though the wise do, fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts, Selah. Like sheep they are appointed to Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning." Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. So in the first section, the psalmist is calling everyone to listen to his message, to unpack this riddle for them, this parable. And in the second section... He is explaining to them and, and kind of answering that question that he sets up in verses 5 and 6 that your money can't save your soul from death. He asserts in, in verses seven through, thri- 7 through 9 that no man can redeem another. That the ransom price to be paid to God in verse 7 is... It's such a a high price, it it can never be paid by a brother for a man. There's just no amount of money in the world that would ever suffice this ransom to God that is demanded in verse 7. It it cannot be paid. And verse 8 explains why. The price is too high. Death comes and wealth cannot bribe him. Hell follows and no golden key can unlock its dungeons, Spurgeon once said. Hamilton points out that the redemption price is the subject of both verbs in verses uh, eight. The price is exorbitant and the amount fails forever. What the price would accomplish is stated in verse nine. The price would enable everlasting life. If if it could be paid, this is what it would result in. But it, it cannot be paid. There is no way to buy your deliverance from the pit. Of hell, that place of destruction where the dead are punished. Humanity has wrecked God's world and no amount of man's money of which God doesn't even have any need will ever satisfy his justice. See, we... We we think God is like us. Jamie talked about that a little bit last week. We we think, well, if I just amass enough stuff, if I just have enough money, then I can appease him or I can make him happy because that's the way most of us are. I could do almost anything to most of you and then give you a million dollars and you would be okay with me the next day. Right? But God's not like us. God has no need for our money. It, it is worthless. It, it, it's like traveling. The closest thing I can think is it's like traveling to a foreign land that uses a completely different money supply than paper money. And you offering all these pieces of paper in your pocket and they look at you and go, I mean, I can burn it, I guess. <laughs> Keep myself warm. I can wipe my backside with it. But it's it's not worth money to us. Because we exchange in gold or silver or platinum or whatever. Right? It's the same. God is so different than us. He can't be bribed. Verses 10 through 12. The psalmist reminds us. Of of a stark truth. That everyone dies. Now. Now. It's always interesting to me how God helps me prepare for sermons. I, I listen to pastors talk about how they prepare for sermons all the time. and Sometimes it, it just it blows my mind how the Lord lines things up in his sovereign plan. Th- this week, um, I got a phone call from Brian asking me, hey, I promised I would go pray for a person who's dying in hospice. With their family, but the family's running late, and I'm going to be at work in the morning, and I I can't go. And and Brian often gets that call from me when I'm hung up and I can't get to the hospice bed, and I want to have somebody there to pray with them. So, I said that that dude, I'm happy to do that. You do it for me all the time, and so I go into this room with a group of people. I, I have I don't know a single person in the room. And I'm praying for them as their loved one is passing away. And, and I'm not thinking anything of it, honestly. This is just ministry, it's part of life. And, but, but then God is just putting the weight of this text upon me and reminding me that everyone dies. And to help me remember that, He sent me to a room for a woman who died the next day. And I got to read scripture and pray to her and encourage her family to the best of my limited ability as she passed away. And then as I was driving home Friday, I I passed a vehicle accident. Then I thought, man, I'd be amazed if anybody walked away from that car. And I get home and find out it was a man I used to go to church with and his granddaughter and they both died. And I, I'm coming right on up after the wreck. So we got death that took months because of cancer and then we've got a 17-year-old gone in an instant. They were just up visiting family. Family. I told Amber, I was like, it's crazy to think about how God orchestrates things. I, I could have came by two hours later. Brian could have, the family could have been on time, and I never would have been involved in that situation. But I really think the Lord wanted to just remind me and press on me that everyone dies, young and old, rich and poor, We are all heading to the same place. And we strive really hard to distract ourselves from this reality. I I know I have in the past. I'll, I'll be the first to admit this is a place in which I am chief of sinners. I spent a large part of my life not wanting to think about dying. But the reality is this morning, we are all going to die. And and, and I don't say that so that you would leave here with some kind of morbid, depressed kind of idea. But if we forget that reality, we begin to hold on to the things of the world just a little too much. We begin to trust in our security or our workout plan or our diet plan or whatever it is that we are promoting at this time as a thing that is going to save me from the demon of death rather than clinging to God. Because the reality is we are all going to die. And the psalmist wants that weightiness to to hang upon you for a moment. He, He wants you to remember and experience what maybe you have distracted yourself and forgotten. He then reflects in verses 13 through 15 on the foolishness of the wealthy, trusting in their wealth and their reputation. This should not be something that we fear he says but instead it's something we should we should pity their ignorance the the things in which they are entrusting their eternal soul to are like vapors the the wealthy cannot buy they cannot pay for their redemption It doesn't matter how many millions or billions or trillions you have in your bank account. You can't buy your way out of this. And yet, that's the way they live their life, the psalmist says. This is what they're placing their hope and their trust in. The wealthy cannot pay for their redemption. But the psalmist is confident that God will redeem him. Now, let me, let me give you a little point of application here before I go on. Because it's, this is what we tend to do. Well, I'm not going to speak for you. This is what I tend to do. Whenever someone starts talking about being wealthy, I think, oh, I know who a wealthy person is. And it's not me. But this part of the sermon isn't about me. But it's about that person and that person and that person. Listen to what Timi- Timothy and Kathy Keller wrote. They, they wrote a little book, Praying Through the Psalms. Listen, listen to this little section that they wrote in response to Psalm 49. Lord, I often catch myself imagining how much greater life would be if I had more. I also quietly boast in my own own heart when I see myself able to afford certain goods and inhabit certain places. Lord, save my heart from such shallowness and foolishness. That brings it right down to you, right? It brings it down to me. (laughs) No, No matter where you're at financially, we we're always wanting a little more and if i just had that little more then everything would be fine then life would be so much easier and, and keller is reminding us here that, that that is a shallowness of heart that that is that is foolishness if we think anything other than our lord is going to provide and make our life Better and greater. This is something I think we can all apply, no matter where we're at financially today. Because all of our hearts tend to want more. I, I don't speak with many people that say, you know what? I would really like is to have less in my bank account. Lord, Please. Right, this is uh, this is the human heart. We we desire more, and it's easy to hear a psalm about the rich and think, "Well, that's not me." When we forget that we are the top one percent of the world, one of the reasons why I love taking people to Guatemala is so that they see and understand just how much they have and then complain about that millions of people live without. And yet, there's more joy there than I find in America with the little bit that they have. You, you you give a kid an empty three-liter bottle, and I know we don't have many three-liter bottles in America, but it's a little bit bigger than a two-liter, and it's perfect for sliding down a hill when you inflate it with air. You give what we call trash to a little kid in Guatemala and you've just made their weekend. And they'll take turns sharing this three liter bottle sliding down. Or they will take the plastic bags that you get at the grocery store and throw away. Maybe some of you reuse them, but most of us throw them away. And they would turn them into a kite and they would fly them off the side of the mountain. And again, be entertained for a week until the kite finally blows away. Our hearts desire more and more and we're never satisfied. And it's easy for us to subtly start to put our hopes and our dreams into having more. The psalmist is reminding us that we need to watch and, and guard our hearts against that kind of shallowness and foolishness. Let's read verses 16 through 20. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, His soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like a beast that perish. This last section I've entitled, Fear Not Believers, Death is Coming. The psalmist urges his audience not to fear. Again in verse 16 and 17. As as believers, we should not care if the godless prosper we have no right to question god in his divine justice because temporary prosperity is a small matter for us to waste our time on as believers and yet so many of us get hung up on this our our hearts get bitter because we see what we think is, is is being unfair because this person is getting more financially or reputationally, even though they, they are constantly being sinful. The, the way in which they go about getting their, 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 their money is wickedness. And, and it's easy for us to fall into this, this system and this idea of like, oh, man, I, God, this is unfair. I'm working hard. Why can't you bless me a little bit? Why can't you give me a little bit of that money? As I was researching and preparing and looking for examples, uh, I, I stumbled across this man who was arrested in Florida last week. Not a shock, Florida man gets arrested, right? But, but, but this guy had, a, had done a $7 million Ponzi scheme out in like Colorado or Montana. He was arrested and while in federal custody, he conned another $700,000 out of people and then escaped prison. He's been living in Florida in a $1.5 million house going to charity balls, not hiding, not, you know, living in a hole somewhere. Like he's out enjoying the high life for the last like seven or eight years. The marshals have been looking for him and, and he's out at a charity ball. And somebody's like, they took a picture and he's on the front page of the newspaper in this bright suit. And everybody's like, or one person was like, damn, that guy looks familiar. And tip goes in. And as he's, moving back in the U-Haul into this $1.5 million house, the marshals show up and say, hey, we finally found you, right? It's easy for us to go, why did this guy get to live this extravagant lifestyle, stealing other people's money for so long without any consequences? And you know what? He's still not in a cell. So who knows what's going to happen? He's a slippery one. And it's easy for us to go, oh, that's not fair it's easy for us and our hearts to get caught up in what we don't have and what we see other people having. When we see other people prospering, and the psalmist is like, "Hey, that's all temporary. It's it's as fleeting as your life is." And if that's all they ever have in light of eternity, who cares? As Spurgeon said, let the dogs have their bones and the pigs their slop when the glory of the house is increased. Even when the sinner is held up in great esteem by the world, like Robert Ingersoll, remember, all things will be made right in God's time. He then closes in verses 18 through 20 with a reflection on the finality of death and the futility of of all that ends when life is over. And we see in the New Testament a a teaching of Jesus that seems to mirror what the Holy Spirit is writing through the psalmist here in Psalm 49. Listen to this parable from Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. We read this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. God. So Jesus is basically laying out the same kind of principle that we find here. H- how many times have you guys seen people who have amassed great wealth only to have their families fight over it and squander it most of the time? And worse than than the loss of the money it's the loss of the family. They, they refuse to speak to one another after they get through fighting over these little bit of earthly things. People have asked me in the past and there's people I'm doing it currently for be, Would you be my executor? And I said, only if you will write every single thing down, I don't want any judgment calls on my part. I will simply execute your wishes. If that's what you want me to do, I will be happy to do it. But if you want me to look at this and make some kind of judgment call, no. Because I've just seen too many families ripped apart and destroyed over money, over property. It doesn't really matter. Perhaps you've heard the old story about the husband that made his wife swear to him that if he died first, that she would bury him with all of his money, all of his earthly possessions. And she assured him, yes, honey, I will do that for you. I I promise you I will do that. And then the husband died. And as they're doing the funeral, they get out of the church and they're out to the graveside. And, and they're standing there, and she leans over to the funeral director, and she asks the funeral director, "Would you, would you do me a favor? Would you, would you open the casket one last? Let me see my husband one last time." And she leans over her husband, and she slips an envelope into his suit, his inner suit pocket, and she's weeping. And then she asks the funeral director to close the coffin. And they bury her husband. And her children are back there watching as she did this. And later they ask, what, what did you put in father's pocket? And she told them she was simply following her husband's wishes. She had made him a promise. And so she placed a check into the coffin for his entire net worth. She kept her word. But she also knew where he was going, there was never going to be anybody cashing that check. And it would do us good to remember that this morning, that we cannot take it with us when we go. One final point of application this morning. Psalm 49, 15 says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Now the psalmist was looking forward to Jesus. He he did not know Jesus. He did not understand Jesus. He did not understand how God himself was going to pay this ransom through his son, Jesus. But he's foreshadowing and he's looking forward to that. Now, we are standing over here looking back at this psalm and we understand how we are ransomed from Sheol. And that is God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you and for me. So that if we confess our sins, we are placed in Christ. We are hidden in him. So that judgment day that was talked about in chapter 50, none of us have to fear that if we are believers. Because none of us are going to have to give an account. Because all of us are going to say one word. Jesus. That's it. He is the one that has ransomed me. It's not me living any kind of life as 51 is going to show. What God wants is a contrite heart. One that confesses and repents of their sin. That's the worship that God is desiring from each and every one of us. Every day of our life. Knowing that Jesus is the one that has ransomed us from Sheol. Here's the good news that has more good news this morning. That's the good news. If you don't know Jesus this morning, put your faith and trust in him. Be hidden in his righteousness because you will never have enough righteousness to earn a pass from Sheol. That in itself should be amazing, wonderful news that leaves us cheering and shouting and praising God. But, folks, as they say on those television commercials, that's not all. There's more. And that more we see in 2 Corinthians 4 17, or 7 through 18. You see, we don't have to wait. If you are a believer here this morning, whether you're putting your faith and trust in Christ for the first time today or you've been a believer for years. We not only need not fear death. But we also do not have to wait until we die to begin to experience the ransom of our souls. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. But not driven to despair persecuted, but not forsaken struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body, the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words, before we die. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that we You see what he's saying there? Every day you are dying. This outer husk, this outer shell is dying. And yet for a believer, you are being reborn day by day. You are experiencing the ransom of your soul today and tomorrow if he gives you tomorrow. We, we are not people who just sit back and go, oh, one day it's going to be great. Whenever Jesus comes back or whenever I die, I'm going to go be with him. And we're just coasting. No. The Lord is renewing us from the inside out. This, is, this should bring you so much comfort if you're here this morning and you're suffering in chronic pain. Because every morning you wake up knowing I'm going to hurt. I would encourage you, memorize this verse. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This, this gives me so much confidence to walk into a hospice room of a believer. And to be able to declare this truth to them and to the family. Who's watching the outer self literally waste away. But to be able to encourage them with the truth of God's word. That the day by day by day they are being renewed. Verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen. But to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Your money, your wealth, your reputation. All that stuff he's talking about in Psalm 49 that the foolish put their hope in. That's all transient. It's all passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Good news, believers. Death is coming. We should rejoice every day in that death because God is remaking us anew. He has ransomed our souls. We have no need of fear, of death itself, or even judgment because God has ransomed our soul for us if we are in Christ. He is going to look at you. And he's going to see his son and he's going to smile if he has a smile. I don't know. God's a spirit. I'm looking forward to figuring that out. I got a long list of things I'd like to know. But if he can smile, he's going to be smiling from ear to ear for eternity because of his son. And he sees him and not me. Praise God. He doesn't see me. And we can rejoice even death and I want to encourage you and this is going to seem counterintuitive and this is my last point of application but consider now how you can make your death an act of worship I think about the way Moody died people still talk I'm talking about it all these years later Because he made it an act of worship. The closer you get to that day. And again, we never know when that day is. But pray and ask God. God, help me to make that, even that act, an act of worship. So that all of my life glorifies you. In life and even in death. Let's pray, Father, as we come now and we celebrate the Lord's Supper that, that remembers the death that ransomed our lives. Father, I pray that you would remind us that we are being renewed as believers day by day, that this is, this is a ransom that is ongoing. And Father, that would lead us to come to this table in celebration of who you are, of your faithfulness, your your steadfast love toward us. If we simply confess and repent of our sins and trust in you and not in ourselves.